Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. For much of the summer, we were in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches that this book of Revelation was sent to. For the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4 and 5, John gets a vision from Jesus that comes immediately after these letters. In chapter 4, John records a setting of a scene that's about to take place. Uh, The main action of the scene really doesn't take place until chapter 5. But this week we'll look at chapter 4, and then next week we'll be in chapter 5. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, we saw the prequel to this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. So as we read Revelation 4 to begin this morning, uh, would you join me back in the throne room as we see God on his throne? Read with me, starting in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. John writes, After this, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. With one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. With golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are Four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed 
and we're created. Amen. Over the past few weeks, uh, there's been a sad story uh, that's been developing, that's been transpiring. Uh, There's a best-selling author, speaker, pastor named Josh Harris, um, who was known for promoting a a view of biblical sexuality, a biblical view of marriage. Uh, He had written, he had preached much on this subject. He had led a very large church. And uh, over the last few weeks, it's come out that not only has he abandoned what he used to write, uh, he and his wife announced that they were divorcing. And just a few days later, this man who was a pastor of a megachurch, he's a conference speaker, the author of Christian books, promoting the gospel and biblical teaching, he, he followed up his announcement about him and his wife divorcing with this. On Instagram, he wrote, My heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. They are expressions of love though they are saddened or even strongly disapprove of the decision. I'm learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. While not always pleasant, I know they are seeking to love me. There have also been spiteful, hateful comments that angered and hurt me. The information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Now, there's, there's a whole lot that is, is not known, that we can't know about what's going on in this man's heart, what's going on in his life. Don't know the whole story. I certainly wouldn't claim to know the whole story. But based just on his public comments, I think there's a really significant observation that we can make, that I think ought to serve as a warning to all of us. Josh Harris is letting his experience be his final authority on what he believes is true, false, what is right, wrong, and what is real. Now, of course, our experiences do shape what we think about what is right and wrong, and there's biblical uh, warrants for that to be true. I mean, we have whole books of the Bible like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes where under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, authors are writing about their experience in life and how that showed them things that were true. So it's not that it's bad to have experience shaping the way that we think, but it can be incredibly dangerous. It is incredibly dangerous if we let our experience be the final authority for what we believe about what is true and false and right and wrong and real. And in this 
man's case, whether it was his experiences in life or experiences in marriage or experiences with a variety of people that he became close to. Uh, he's no longer letting God's word define reality for him. He's letting his experiences define reality. And we have to admit that we all have a tendency of letting our understanding of what is absolute, what is real, what's true, what's right and wrong, be shaped more by our experiences than anything else. This was certainly true of these letters or, or these churches that Jesus is writing letters to. I mean, just think about the circumstances, the experiences that these seven churches were having and how those might impact what they believe about what is real and true and right and wrong and absolute. The church at Ephesus was experiencing battle against false teaching, enduring patiently, but letting their love slip in the cracks. It wasn't on the forefront of what they were doing. The church in Smyrna was experiencing suffering and persecution economically, socially, physically, at the hands of the religious majority of their culture. The church in Pergamum was in a culture dominated by false worship in which they were being bombarded with temptation and they were compromising their integrity as a result. The church in Thyatira was in a culture dominated by sexual immorality and they were buying into the lies that their culture was telling them about sexuality. The church in Sardis was coasting on their good reputation, but they were fooling themselves. They were actually nearly dead as a church. The church in Philadelphia was being opposed by the powerful religious majority of their culture. The church in Laodicea was in an affluent culture, which led them to be unhealthy spiritually. They had become self-reliant instead of dependent upon Jesus. So all of these churches were in very different and ever-changing circumstances. And all of these churches were in various and ever-changing spiritual conditions. Some of them were experiencing great suffering. Some of them were too comfortable. Some of them were in a healthy place spiritually. Some of them were in dire need of repentance. And so Jesus addresses the, the present circumstances, the experiences of these seven churches in the letters that came right before our passage for today. But as he comes to chapter 4, he's turning his attention away from their present experiences, their current circumstances, and he's addressing the question, now what? Where do we go from here? What do these churches need to hear about what to expect in the coming days? What do these churches need to know in whatever circumstances they find themselves in? The first thing that all of these churches and all of their experiences, however diverse those circumstances may be, the first thing they need to know is God is on his throne. God is on his throne. These churches, in all of their circumstances, needed to be reoriented to absolute reality. In their ever-changing circumstances, in the midst of all of the conflicting voices in their ears telling them what's true and what's right, and what's important, they needed to be reminded of what is rock solid, what's never changing. Those who were suffering needed to know that God is still on the throne. He hasn't forgotten 
about them. Those who were too comfortable needed to be reminded that God is still on the throne and everything that they have comes from his hand. Those who were living in sin needed to be reminded that God is still on the throne and he is the holy judge. Those who were spiritually healthy needed to know and see God on his throne and know that he is worthy of worship. And no matter what you are experiencing today, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you need to know God is on his throne. You need to be reminded of absolute reality. It's the grace of God that he would give us a window into heaven and remind us this morning of what is most important, what is rock solid in the midst of all of the turbulence around us, that God is on his throne. Because again, we do all have a tendency to let our experiences shape what we think is absolute, what's real. Maybe it's our experience of circumstances. We experience suffering, and we're tempted to think that God doesn't care about us. We experience wealth, and we think we don't need God. But what we believe may also be shaped by what we experience in terms of our feelings. We feel that something's right, and so we let our feeling trump what God says. We feel like something's valuable, and so we don't even ask what God's priorities are. But our beliefs may also be shaped by our experience in terms of relationships. We grow close to someone who's living in unrepentant sin, and we think, surely God isn't opposed to what this person's doing. I mean, I know them. I mean, their heart's in the right place. Maybe you've never experienced unconditional love from someone, and so you think God's love is too good to be true. Maybe your relationship with your father was unhealthy, and that shapes the kind of father that you think God is. The only kind of father you've known is cruel, so you assume God must be cruel too. But whatever you may have experienced, whatever you may be experiencing now, experience is not ultimate. Reality is not determined by your circumstances. Right and wrong are not determined by your feelings. Truth is not determined by your relationships. In this ever-changing world that we live in, we can know the everlasting, unshakable reality of God on his throne. And in the ugliness of the fallen world that we live in, we can know the beauty of the glory of God radiating from his throne. So let's take a closer look now at the scene that John describes. Over the next few moments, we're going to look at the scene in heaven, and then we're going to talk about our response on earth. That's our whole rest of our time in the Word today. The scene in heaven and our response on earth. So let's look at this scene in heaven. Uh, look at verse 1 again. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So the voice that John heard, that first voice, was the voice of Jesus. Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos and appeared in this glorious picture 
filled with signs and imagery pointing to his glory as the resurrected Savior. And Jesus is coming to him now, saying, I'm going to show you what must take place after this. He had just dictated letters to seven churches about what is, and now he's going to tell them what must come after this, what must take place after this. Where do we go from here? And throughout the whole rest of Revelation, Jesus shows John visions of what the church needs to know about the period of time that Scripture refers to as the last days. The period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Some of the visions that John sees have to do with things that pertain to uh, events very close to the coming, the second coming of Jesus. Some of the visions pertain to things that happen throughout these last days. But all of the visions that John's going to see, all of the things that the church needs to know about the future for the rest of the book, it all flows from this vision of the throne room of God that Jesus shows to John. These chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, are the foundation of everything that is to come because throughout Revelation, John is seeing a heavenly perspective of events on earth. He's seeing a heavenly view of earthly realities. And by doing this, Jesus is encouraging his churches on earth in their present circumstances. He's giving them, he's giving us hope. And he's calling us to endure by giving us a heavenly perspective on earthly realities. So look at verses 2 and 3. The first thing of this heavenly perspective that we need to know is that there is one on the throne. John says, at once I was in the spirit, verse 2. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So John, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't physically transported to heaven. But spiritually, Jesus brings John up to see heaven. And he shows him God on his throne. He's a glorious king who's reigning over all things. In God's heavenly kingdom, he alone is on the throne. There is no other. God is, in his kingdom, the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branches of government all in one throne. He is the lawmaker. He is the law enforcer. He is the judge and the jury. He gets the first word. He gets the final word. He is the mighty king on the throne of heaven. He is a mighty king, but he's also a merciful king. Notice that John sees a rainbow around the throne. After God destroyed the earth with a flood in the days of Noah, he made a covenant with all of creation. He promised never again to destroy the earth with a flood. And the sign of that covenant was a rainbow. When you see the rainbow... You're supposed to remember that God is still keeping his promise to not, again, destroy the earth with a flood. And so even as John sees this king on his throne, and even as he is about to find out about some serious judgment that God will execute against evil on the earth, he sees a picture of God's mercy around his throne of judgment. A reminder that God is still keeping his promise. 
in his mercy, he has withheld his final judgment until his appointed time. He is patient in keeping his promise until just the right time when his final judgment will come once and for all and he will, we will enter into a new heavens and a new earth. So after describing this throne and God on the throne, John tells us who else is in the throne room. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So these 24 elders uh, represent the people of God. The number 12 throughout Scripture is associated with the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And so uh, 24 here, uh, 2 times 12, it's a symbol of, likely it's a symbol of the combined people of God. The Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, one body in which the, the wall of hostility has been divided and there's one body. And notice that these elders on the thrones have received the rewards that Jesus promised to saints who conquer. Right? He promised that those faithful unto death would receive a crown of life back in chapter 2 and verse 10. Back in chapter 3 and verses 5 and 18, he offered to his churches gold and white garments. And then in chapter 3 and verse 21, he promised that the one who conquers would sit with him on his throne. As Jesus is showing the churches through John the throne of God, he is giving them a glimpse of the hope that awaits them if they conquer. The sure reward that is on the other side of faithful endurance in this fallen world. It's a gift to be around the throne, but it's also terrifying to be around the throne. Look at verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Uh, lightning and fire and rumblings and peals of thunder. This is, this is a great and awesome and powerful scene. You do not come into the presence of a holy God lightly. He is Powerful, awesome, terrifying. Um, I don't know if you've ever gotten up close to large professional grade fireworks. Uh, but a few years ago, I was at a fireworks show. And we weren't just close to the fireworks. We were like under the fireworks. And, you know, when you see fireworks from far away, you think, oh, that's so pretty. But when you are so close to fireworks that every explosion feels like a defibrillator on your chest and ash is falling on your face and you're having to squint from the light and your ears are ringing from the blast, you think, oh no, I'm going to die on 4th of July. <laughs> it's terrifying. I mean, it's awesome. It's, it's spectacular, but it's terrifying. What John sees here is loud. It shakes him at his core. It's holiness that is so great, he, he can't even put it into words. I mean, Isaiah said that God is so holy that even just talking about his holiness causes the foundations of the thresholds to tremble. 
This is an awesome God. This is a God you don't approach casually. He's powerful and awesome. And we see this reality also in the sea of glass that stands before the throne. Uh, John, again, he's been transported spiritually to heaven. He's seeing from the top a sea of glass like crystal. Well, the prophet Ezekiel saw something similar, but he wasn't seeing it from the top, from the perspective of heaven. He saw it from an earthly perspective. He looked up, Ezekiel writes, and he saw an expanse like crystal. And he could see on the other side of this crystal a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. So we see that this sea of glass is kind of like a, it's like the floor of heaven is the ceiling of earth. And it points us to a couple of things. On the one hand, it's transparent, it's clear, and it points to the connection between heaven and earth. God in heaven is reigning over earth. The heavenly reality is over the earthly reality. It's reigning over what is happening on earth. But on the other hand, it is rock hard as crystal. It's an impenetrable barrier. There is a barrier between heaven and earth. You cannot just casually enter into the presence of a holy, awesome, mighty God. Then in verses 6 to 8, John sees creatures very similar to the seraphim that we saw in Isaiah 6. These four living creatures that are full of eyes and they have faces like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. And they have these six wings. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These Pictures of the, the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle uh, likely stand for, for all of creation. They're representative of all of creation. And so John sees these heavenly beings doing what all of creation is meant to do. Bringing glory and honor and worship and praise and adoration to the God on his throne. They're glorifying God for all that he is. He is holy, holy, holy. Absolutely Holy, in a category all to himself. He's the Lord God Almighty. He has ultimate power. There is no higher throne. He is totally sovereign. And he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. No one comes before him. No one comes after. He is the eternal God of eternal life. The uncreated one. And they never cease never cease. Literally, they never rest from their praise of God. These creatures who, who we're told have eyes all over them see God more clearly than anyone else can see God. They see him in the splendor of his holiness. They see the terrifying and awesome display of glory at the throne, and they never get bored of it. They never stop praising God. They never finish giving God glory because they never run out of awe at the holiness of God. But the worship around the throne doesn't stop with these four living creatures. Look at verses 9 to 11. Whenever the living creatures who never stop giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, whenever they give glory, verse 10, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The living creatures worship without ceasing. And every time they declare that God is holy and all-powerful and eternal, the 24 elders bow in reverence to the king on his throne. They take their crowns. They take any measure of power that they may have, and they lay them at God's feet in humble adoration. They praise God telling him he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? What's the reason for their prayer? Because he's the creator. He's the cause, the ultimate cause of all things. He's the reason everything exists. He is the eternal, uncreated one, and everything and everyone else that exists is totally dependent upon him. Because he created all things, he owns all things. All things belong to him. Our life belongs to him. Our heartbeat belongs to him. Our relationships belong to him. He created all things. He is the king on his throne. We are not free agents. We're not the authors of our own stories. We are accountable to this God. He determines why we exist. He determines how we ought to live. He is the ultimate reality. And all things revolve around him. Did did you notice, even as we were going through this scene in heaven, the concentric circles around the throne, uh, the, the rainbow encircling his throne, the 24 elders and their thrones were circled around the throne, the four living creatures in a circle around his throne. Everything revolves around this God. Everything is has God at the center, at the center of all things, is God on his throne, the king who rules over all. So how do we respond to such a God? What do we do with this scene in heaven? Well, we've seen the scene in heaven, so let's talk about our response on earth. I see two ways that we should respond to God on his throne from this text. The first is to exult in God on his throne. E-X-U-L-T. Exult in God on his throne. My guess is most of us probably did not use the word exult in our conversations this past week. Um, so in case that's a, that's a word that's maybe not super common, let me just explain. It, it sounds a lot like the word exalt, E-X-A-L-T. Um, but it's, it's distinct from that word. They're, they're both related to worship in Scripture, but exalt and exult are different in Scripture. To exalt God is to give him glory, to elevate him in our minds and our hearts, to hold him in a high place of honor. To exult is to rejoice, to rejoice in, to delight in God. To delight in who he is. That's what we see these four creatures doing. That's what we see the 24 elders doing. They see God in his glory. They see him 
clearly, and they are exulting in him. They're delighting in him. They're rejoicing in this great and awesome and glorious God. And there's something fascinating about exulting. This is, this is an experience that I guarantee we've all had. We may just not have called it exulting. But there's something fascinating about exulting, rejoicing in something, delighting in something. Uh, because when, when we exult in something else or someone else, we experience absolute joy and delight. We experience total pleasure. But at the same time, we're not thinking about ourselves at all. We're just focused on the thing or the person that we're exulting in. So let me give you an example. Maybe you've stood at the Grand Canyon or something else wonderful in nature. Maybe you've stood at the Grand Canyon and your jaw dropped at the sheer size of it. And your eyes were fixed on the, the mesmerizing, intricate detail of the glory before you. And every little detail of the, the canyon walls, just like you can't take it all in. Or maybe you've been to uh, Niagara Falls, and you've been just breathless at the relentless power of this water just pouring relentlessly, unceasingly. Maybe you've just been captivated by just the shimmering beauty of this water cascading over the edge. And in that moment, you get, you get entranced. You get caught up in this. And you, you feel this wonder and joy, this awe, this satisfaction. It, but you're not thinking about yourself. Your eyes, you're totally focused on this. You're getting lost in what's before you. Yet your heart is experiencing more satisfaction than if you had been looking at yourself and trying to get that. This experience of exulting in something, of taking delight in something, of being captivated by wonder and greatness and glory and finding joy, not in looking at yourself, but in looking at something great, is what we were made for. Those experiences, the little shadows of exulting, of greatness that we see in nature are arrows, giant neon arrows that are pointing us to the ultimate greatness, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate object of our affection and our attention that we are to exult in forever. God on his throne. John Piper uh, captures this idea in, in what's probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, Self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. Self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. You and I were created to experience the joy that these beings around the throne of God are experiencing day and night. 
the four living creatures are around the throne and they're so enthralled with the holiness of God and the beauty of his majesty, the greatness of his power, they never get tired of saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. They, they have eyes all over and none of them is looking at themselves. They want every single eye that they have, all of the attention that they can possibly give to entirely focus on the glory and beauty of the character of God on display in his throne. Because there is no greater delight than looking at this God, than fixing our eyes on his character, being lost in the wonder of who he is. As, as the 24 elders gaze at God on his throne and, and the four living creatures lead out in the worship of this God, the 24 elders never get tired of getting off their thrones and getting down on their knees and getting down on their faces and putting their crowns before this God. They don't for a second want to keep the crowns for themselves. They want everything they are, everything they have to be before the feet of the king in all of his splendor because they know this is the creator. This is the one I'm living for. This is the one who is worthy. This is the one that it's all about. This is what we were made for, but so often we don't turn our attention to this God. We don't turn our attention to the one on his, to the king on his throne to satisfy our souls. We keep our eyes on ourselves. We approach scripture not to gaze at God's glory and see his character and his beauty. But we just want to get to the answer to our question that's on our heart. And we, we pray, but we skip past hallowed be your name because we're too eager to get to give us this day our daily bread. It may be tempting to think that exalting and God is, is impractical. I mean, come on. Yeah, this is all great. Glory and beauty. And, but like, you know, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, I'm back in the office. It seems like disconnected from reality. Disconnected from normal life. Like, okay, yeah, heavenly perspective on earth. But like, what does this have to do with my life? But the Bible says that there is nothing more practical. There is nothing more important. For us in our day-to-day -day grind, in our normal life, than experiencing and looking at and interpreting all of life through the lens of the character of God on his throne. The ultimate reality that all other realities in the universe revolve around. When we face suffering, we can look to God. And experience a joy in him that eclipses any suffering that we experience. Do you remember what Stephen, the first Christian martyr, saw when he was about to be stoned to death by an angry mob that was coming at him? Acts 7 says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you're about to be stoned to death, you might think the most practical thing you need is an escape route. The most practical thing you need is a, a shield or body armor. 
But what God gave to Stephen in that moment when he was about to be stoned to death was a vision of him on his throne. Exulting in God, rejoicing in God, in his character, is also the answer to anxiety. In Philippians 4, 4 4-7, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Exult in the Lord. Always, always, always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you experience pain, and suffering, and sickness, and persecution, remember that God is on his throne. And nothing, nothing has escaped his control. Nothing has slipped through the cracks. He is the king who reigns over all. And remember that your ultimate satisfaction, the fulfillment to the longings, the deepest longings of your heart, were never meant to be satisfied in comfort, or health, or wealth, or ease, your joy is made full in the presence of God. Psalm 16, 8 through 11 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't go looking for satisfaction in a person. Don't go looking for delight in a substance. Don't go looking for joy in success or power or reputation. Don't go looking for purpose or meaning in what you do or in what people think of you. Find joy in God on his throne. The king in all of his beauty. Exult in the king on his throne. Finally, remember how we can approach the throne. Remember how we can approach the throne. Because we must recognize, we've seen throughout this vision of the throne, that we do not deserve to come before the glorious throne of God. We are not worthy to stand in the presence of the holy creator. God is holy, holy, holy. Sin may not dwell in his presence. He's a God of thunderous, flaming, awesome holiness that devours impurity. There's an impenetrable barrier between a holy God and a fallen world. And we were made to delight in the glorious God forever, but we caused the separation between us and God because we ran to lesser joys. We sought satisfaction and things that were not God. We took our eyes off of God and 
put them on ourselves. We did not give God the glory that he deserves. Like Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, deny absolute reality, let their experiences come before the truth of God and the God on his throne. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. By indulging in our sin, we gave up the pleasure of delighting in God. And instead of exulting in the holiness of God, we deserve to be crushed by the holy judgment and wrath of God. But, but, even though our garments were stained, God has made a way for our clothes to be washed white. Even though we were poor and pitiable, God has made a way for us to receive from him gold without price. Even though we deserve death, God has made a way for us to receive the crown of life because this holy, glorious creator sent his glorious, eternal, all-powerful son to humble himself as a human. To take the place, to be the perfect substitute for sinners, to die the death under the holy wrath of God that we deserve for sin, to receive in our place what we deserve to receive from a holy God so that we would never have to. He died, but he also rose. And in his rising, he conquered the grave. He was exalted to the throne high above every other throne and every other name that's been named so that he can reconcile us to the throne of God so that he can give us eternal life, so that he can bring us back to the throne where we can delight and rejoice and exult in the presence of this glorious God forever if we would just trust in him, if we would turn from sin, turn from looking at ourselves, turn from lesser glories, turn from lesser things, turn from small little idols and worshiping creatures that don't come close to the glory of the creator, and if we would trust in Jesus and his work for us, his death in our place, his life forever. And when you think of the glory and majesty and beauty and greatness and wonder of this God and of this gospel of Jesus that has made a way for us to be reconciled to this glorious God, when we recognize ultimate reality, everything else, everything else is put in perspective. Let's pray together. God, I pray that this passage this morning, that your revelation of yourself on your throne 
would reorient our hearts, that we would know what is rock solid, never changing in a world that is ever changing. Lord, as voices are calling out to us, luring us away to lesser glories, lesser beauties, creatures instead of the creator, Lord, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus who has made a way for us to gaze upon your glory, your greatness, to delight in you forever and ever and ever. Lord, I pray that we would know that worshiping you is what we were made for. Lord, would we set our eyes on you? And would everything else be put into perspective as we give you the glory that you deserve, the one on the throne around whom all things revolve. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.